Great to have you here. My name's Matt. I'm the pastor here of Tri-City Church. And uh, if you're new here with us, uh, the middle part of our gathering time, we always spend looking into God's Word. Uh, we believe that God speaks through His Word and that it's most helpful for us. And so we're going to do that again today. Uh, we are going to be in Luke 5, verses 33 to 39. We've been kind of just working our way through the book of Luke, especially the early stages of the ministry of Jesus. And uh, I'm going to begin with prayer, and then we are going to dive into our text for today. So uh, please join with me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the beautiful weather outside. Thank you, God, for this beautiful uh, area of the world that we get to live in. God, I pray for our cities. I pray for the Tri-Cities. I pray for the Ridge Meadows area. I pray, Lord, for all of our communities. God, we, we pray for your continued blessing and peace and protection upon our, city, uh, upon our cities. And God, I pray that this would be a time right now when we, as we gather here, Lord, we would have on our hearts not just what you have for us, but also what you have for our communities. Uh, Lord, we pray that this would be a time where we, we grow in understanding of who you are. And Lord, where we are equipped to then go out and to be a blessing to others. And so I pray, Lord, whether we are followers of Jesus right now or whether we're interested in that, I just pray this would be a time where we, we come to know you more, where we get some of our uh, questions answered. And God, where uh, you grow us in every good way. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, you might have noticed the title of our sermon uh, is Out with the Old, In with the New. And we are going to be talking about the new. Uh, in particular, we're going to be talking about the new covenant that God brought with Jesus, the new gospel. Uh, with Jesus coming, there is a lot of newness uh, in especially the beginning parts of his ministry. But in thinking about the new, uh, I just wanted to, you know, think about that for a moment. Uh, when something is new, it, it tends to mean, I think, that there has been an improvement upon the old, right? That most of the time we make something new because the old wasn't working well enough and we want something better. The problem is, though, that people don't always like what's new because we don't always like change. Uh, one... Uh, story came to my mind, something from, from my history, really culturally speaking, something that you may remember. Uh, there was a, a day in 1985 when Coke, the Coca-Cola company, they launched something called New Coke. And it was to be an improvement upon the old. Uh, this was the ad that they brought out, right? America's taste just got better, right? If you read through the text, it's more refreshing, more thirst quenching. It's like old Coke, but so much better. The problem is that no one liked New Coke. No one wanted New Coke. And in fact, uh, the immediate response from the public was very, very negative. Uh, people started to hoard old Coke. They would go and spend thousands of dollars, get pallets of Coke delivered to their house, keep it in their basement so they could drink it because they were afraid it was going to become extinct. There were protest groups that started. One of them was called uh, the Society for the Preservation of the Real Thing. <laughs> Also subtitled, The Old Coke Drinkers of America. And there were actually protests that came about in uh, this one. I'm going to show you a picture from downtown Atlanta. And you see the sign that someone wrote there, <laughs> right? Our children will never know refreshment. If you get rid of Coke, what will happen? It was, it was a real shock to America. And um, so Coke quickly realized that they had misjudged this. I mean, they did, they did market research, they did taste tests, but they didn't realize how much people just loved old Coke. There was a sense of nostalgia. And so very quickly, they set up a hotline where you could phone in, you could vote for either old Coke or new Coke. And I remember as a seven-year-old phoning and voting for old Coke. It was very important to me. 
They got uh, 1,500 calls a day into their hotline. And before long, they finally realized, look, this, we have to do something. And so after about 80 days, um, they announced that they would keep Old Coke, and they came to call it Coke Classic. And of course, it was all over the newspapers, right? Old Coke is back. They had newspaper articles and the like, which, were, which was a, a breath of fresh air. Thankfully, Old Coke is staying. People couldn't believe it. In fact, uh, the very day, the next day that they announced it, they had 31,000 people call into the Coca-Cola company to say, thank you. Thank you for keeping Old Coke. So what was a massive marketing blunder was that turned around to actually generate new interest in Coke products. And what they learned, what we relearn, what we really know is that there are certain times when the new isn't better, and that's because we just like the old, right? It's an issue of taste. It's an issue of personal preference. Just because it's something new doesn't mean that it's better. However, there are many times when the new, it, it does actually work better. Like there's an actual improvement that has been made. For example, no one's really protesting that we should go back to standard definition televisions, right? No one's saying, bring back the fuzzy images. I can see too clearly. They'd, we don't want that because it works better, right? No one's saying, let's go back to rotary phones or bring back the medical equipment from the 1950s. We don't, we don't say that because when there is an actual improvement upon the old, we tend to say, oh, that, that makes sense. I, we embrace the new. Well, Jesus was all about the new. Uh, what we see in the early stages of his ministry is that he is, something new has come. A new way of spirituality, a new way of relating to God. It's a new covenant, a covenant of grace rather than a covenant of works between human beings and God. And it's a new gospel, a good news, which is actually a huge improvement upon the old. But just like new Coke, there were many people that really struggled to accept the new and many people that really pushed back on Jesus for bringing this new way of spirituality. And in our text this morning, we see this pushback. We see that the Pharisees in particular struggling to understand this new way of spirituality that Jesus brought. So we're going to turn to our text with all that in mind. And we're beginning in verse 33. And uh, if you were here last week, this is kind of a continuation of his discussion with the Pharisees. And so uh, here's what it says. And they said to him, so this is the Pharisees speaking to Jesus. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And... No one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. So you can see there a lot of talk between the new and the old. We're going to take this text just as it comes. First, with Jesus really making a, a statement about the new mark of godliness that, that comes with his coming. And then uh, he gives three pictures of the change that is necessary to embrace this new gospel that he brings. Three kind of mini parables. So we're going to just take it one by one. Firstly, let's look at uh, verse 33. 
Uh, and he said, they said to him, the disciples of John, fast often, offer prayers, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, as I said, this is a continuation of a discussion. And if you were here last week, you would have seen that the Pharisees were very upset. They were shocked because Jesus went to a party, a feast with Levi, who was a tax collector, with a whole bunch of sinners. And what we see today is that they weren't just shocked because of that one party. They really were confused about Jesus' whole approach to life. Like for them, they were, if Jesus was a man of God, they were expecting him to live a godly life in the way that they thought a godly life should be lived. For them, a a godly life was all about um, asceticism, like rejecting the comforts of life, serious religious devotion. That's how you knew that you were godly. So for uh, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, their classic view of a godly life meant uh, sort of a somber reflection, very sober. Um, They had a lot of uh, things that they did, in particular fasting, to show how godly they were. So for the Pharisees, they would fast twice a week. They would wear like disheveled clothes. They would let their hair hang low. They would even take um, like ash and they would rub it on their cheeks just to show sort of how much they were... They were serious about their faith. That was the mark of godly living. This kind of very serious, sober-mindedness. There was not a lot of joy. And so they couldn't understand how Jesus, who who clearly seemed to be a man of God in some way, or he certainly was saying he was a man of God, but he he didn't have the marks of godly living that they expected. They thought that someone like John the Baptist, that made sense. He might be the Messiah. Because if you know John the Baptist, he, he lived far from the city. He rejected all of the kind of comforts of life. He wore camel hair. He ate bugs. Right? They're like, that seems like someone who takes his faith seriously. But Jesus, he, he, was, he was filled with joy. He was really enjoying and celebrating life. And he answered them and said, look, fasting has its place. But right now, right now is the time when the bridegroom has come. When the Messiah has come. And that means it's like a wedding feast. Look at his words in 34 and 35. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So we know, like for us, we know that a wedding is a feast. We celebrate. But in Jewish culture, it was a real celebration. Um, I'm going to tell you what it's like. You you may have questions about the degree that it's, it's joyful, but listen to what they do. So after the couple is married, uh, there is no honeymoon. Instead, even better, they would live with their parents for that whole week, okay? <laughs> and during that time, they would have a celebration where all of their friends and relatives would come over and they would party from morning till evening. So no Waikiki, right? No Mexico, no all-inclusive vacation resort. Instead, your aunts and uncles, everyone you know would be with you for like 12 hours a day. So it, for us, we're like, mm, is, that, is that that exciting? But the point for them was that this was a chance to party. And all of the wedding guests would be exempted from any fasting. So any fasting, like the two-day-a-week fasting, they, they, they wouldn't have to fast because obviously you can't celebrate and not eat at the same time. So, so what Jesus was saying is, look, we all know that there are certain times when it's just, it's all about a time of celebration and joy. And what he's saying is, with me being here, that's the kind of time it is. That, that the new mark of godliness is not a sober, kind of um, sullen view of religion. It's, it's about joy. That is what marks me, and that is what marks those who are going to follow me, because 
there's a lot of reasons for joy. Like if you think about the ministry of Jesus, he's given them tons of reasons for joy. The lame are walking. The sick have been healed. The hungry are fed. The oppressed are set free. The guilty are forgiven. Tons of reasons for joy. Everyone who encounters Jesus goes away. They're usually dancing or or excited. They're so happy about meeting him. And what he's giving us is a picture, a picture of what it means to be in the presence of God. What it means to actually enter into the kingdom of God. It's a foretaste of the joy of heaven. Saying it doesn't make sense to fast right now. Now is a time for joy, although, although he says there will be a time, a time that's coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. And that's a reference to his coming crucifixion. And we know that because uh, the Greek wording there, taken away, it, it actually in the Greek, if you were to read it, um, you would have the idea of taken away by violence or taken away by force, which is exactly what happens to Jesus. He, he's arrested, falsely accused, falsely tried, beaten, and then put to death on the cross. And in that time, his followers are not, fast, uh, not feasting. They're, they're, they're mourning. It's a time of sorrow. They're, they're fasting. They're, they're brokenhearted. But interestingly, even that time of fasting... It's necessary for greater joy. In fact, that's, that's the, the core of the new gospel. That is the reason that the followers of Jesus have for joy forever. Because as Jesus was taken away by force, by, by violence, put to death on the cross, he achieved for us everything that we hope for. Everything that the Pharisees have been hoping for in God, which is righteousness, which is an answer to our sin, which is the hope of life forever. And so in that moment, in that, in that fasting, even there, it's necessary and it's temporary. Because though Jesus was put to death, he didn't stay dead, he came back to life. And so what Jesus is saying is this new mark of joy, it, it actually does permeate our entire being. It's what I'm about. He went to the cross for the joy set before him and so that he would achieve for us something that is brand new and better. It's better than the old. Because for the Pharisees, for the Jews at the time, they had to earn their righteousness. The burden of righteousness was on them. They had to be perfect. They had to find some way to make peace with God. But now Jesus has come and said, look, I've done that for you. And, And more than earning your righteousness, I've paid the price for your sin. So now there's no burden on you. You you can receive that by grace. It's a covenant of grace rather than a covenant of works, which means that the new covenant is, is not like new Coke in lots of ways, but at least in this way, right? It's not just about preference. It's not just, boy, I kind of liked the way things were in the past. No, it's, it's, it's more like a new drug. It's like penicillin or a vaccine when all of a sudden its existence means that millions of people are alive when they would have been dead. It's something that actually works better. It's a new improvement. And so because of that newness, because of the effectiveness of the new gospel, the new mark of godliness is joy. Because we, we are set free. Because all of, our, all of our longings in our life have been answered in the work of Christ. But, but to receive this new gospel, uh, Jesus knows is going to require a lot of change. Change that is difficult for people to accept, in particular for, for the Jews of the time. And so what he does is he gives us, uh, he says, a parable. It's really a parable in three pictures. Three pictures of the, the wholehearted change, the, the massive change that is necessary to truly 
embrace the gospel, the new gospel. So we're going to look at each one in turn, looking first at what it means and then uh, for them and then what it means for us. So here's the first one. In verse 36, he talks about a new garment. And there, the truth that we see is that we must accept the new gospel entirely. Okay, here's what he says. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So in each case, he kind of appeals to common sense wisdom. Things that people are like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. We know that. And in this case, he's saying, look, you don't buy a new uh, tunic or whatever they wore. Tunics, I think is what they wore. Um, you don't buy a new tunic and then cut out a piece and sew it to your old tunic, right? Vintage clothing was not a thing for them back then. It wasn't a value. When it was an old tunic, if it was threadbare, you should rip it up into rags. You would buy a whole new tunic and that would, be, that would work the best. If you try to join the two, it's going to be ruined. And the point for the Pharisees who he was talking to was that, look, you can't take parts of the new gospel and, and graft them into your old religious system. You can't pick and choose what you think will be best. And Jesus knew this would be a temptation because they had lived all their lives with the Old Testament laws and, and that was how they knew how to be right with God. And so now this new covenant, they, it would be hard. And he knew that some of them would look at it and say, man, I like, I like some parts of Jesus. And so I want to take those parts that I like and just graft them in, kind of patch them up to what I got going on here. And Jesus said, that's, that's not going to work. In fact, we have um, some pictures of how it doesn't work in the New Testament, kind of when the, the New Testament church is growing, people are coming to Jesus. Here's one uh, picture of some Jews who started trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Uh, this is in Acts 19, verses 13 to 16. It says this, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So there you have some Jews, faithful Jews, who wanted to leverage the power of the name of Jesus. They saw his followers with an amazing amount of spiritual power casting out demons. And they said, we want to do that. But the problem is that they, they weren't actually followers of Jesus. They didn't actually have faith in Christ, a wholehearted faith in Christ. So they were trying to piecemeal, take some of the things that they thought might work, and the, the result was a disaster. And Jesus says, that's always what happens when you try to take parts of the gospel. And we know that principle today. We know that there are things that we, we can't always take something new and just patch it up with the old. Uh, like just a few weeks ago, I have an, an old bike in my garage, uh, Don's bike, my wife's bike. Uh, a bike that actually uh, we bought on our first date together. Uh, she asked me to come and help her, and uh, I picked a nice bike for her, and uh, the rest was history. So I had a lot of, you know, reason to keep this bike around, um, but as I took it to the bike mechanic, he had a totally different point of view. He said, look, this bike, uh, you know, the front shocks, they're leaking oil all over the brake pads. I was like, yeah, I saw that. He's like, so you, you can't brake then. You, will, you won't be able to stop. The, it'll grease up the rims. I was like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. And he pointed out that the gears were all messed up. I thought they could be tuned. He said, no, we have to get all new gears. And after pointing out a few different things, he said, look, you know, it probably makes more sense to just sell this bike for parts and get a new bike. And that did make sense. But you know what would make even less sense than what I wanted to do would be to buy a new bike 
and then take the parts off the new bike and put it on the old, right? That would totally be a waste of money. It wouldn't make any sense. And so the, the principle for us is just the same, that for us to accept the gospel entirely, we can't just pick and choose. I mean, we're probably not tempted by some of the old Judaic ways, the old religious system. But more than likely, there are certain things about the gospel that we really love or that we're interested in, other things that we're not so keen on. Like you may really love the message of Jesus as one of forgiveness, right? I mean, that just, man, that just fills your heart with joy. Forgiveness from God, forgiveness for others. But, But when you read in the Bible that it says Jesus is also the judge, of all of humanity, you think, I, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm going to skip over those parts. In like manner, you, you may really love the idea, I mean, that the promises of God, that those who are in Christ are going to grow in spiritual maturity. You love that. But then it also says that's going to happen through suffering, through suffering for the sake of the gospel. And you might think, I, that just doesn't sound right. I don't love that part. And what ends up happening sometimes is that we pick and choose. We, we read through the word of God and we say, man, this part, I, I'm really going to focus hard on this part. But this other part, I, we become the deciders of what should and shouldn't be part of God's word to us in our lives, what Jesus has for us. And the problem with that is that we end up losing Jesus completely because Jesus is the savior and the judge because he has, he has made a way for us to grow in faith. And it is very often, in fact, sometimes most effectively through our suffering. And if we don't have a full understanding of who he is and what he means to do, we're, we're going to lose him completely in the newness he wants to bring. So the first picture we have here and the, the lesson that we have is that we must accept the new gospel entirely. But the second one is about a wineskin, a new wineskin. And here we see that we must give up our old hopes completely. Uh, look at verses 37 to 38. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Uh, now, for the people of the day, no explanation would have been necessary. They would be like, oh yeah, I get that. For us, we don't use a lot of wineskins. So, uh, the deal with wineskins is that they were made from goats and you would, you would tan the skin, you would prepare it, you would sew it into a pouch. Uh, originally, I thought it was kind of like a canteen, like a water bottle for wine, but in fact, it's not that. Uh, it's actually more like what we use for an oak barrel, right, to ferment the wine. And so you would take wine that was fresh off the vineyard, not really drinkable yet, and you would put it into the wineskin and it would ferment. And because the, the new wineskin was uh, strong and elastic, the skin was, still had that strength, it could ferment and expand and it would turn into wine that was drinkable. But what you would never do is take wine that hadn't yet been fermented and put it into an old wineskin because the old wineskin was brittle and weak and it would just burst and you would lose both things. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, this new covenant... It's a better covenant. It's amazing. The grace, the love, the forgiveness of God. It's fantastic. You, you can't take that though and bring it into the old Judaic worldview. The old covenant was a covenant of works. The, the, the Jews of the time thought if I could just keep the laws of God, I would have peace with God. I would be holy and righteous. That, that's the answer to all my longings in life. You can't have that and a covenant of grace. Because with the covenant of grace, we recognize that our works will never be enough. And the two, if you try to bring them together, you'll ruin both things. But Jesus knew that there would be some that would want to keep both. That because of their affinity for, their familiarity with the Judaic 
worldview and religious system, they would, they would kind of want to have it both ways, and that actually ended up happening. Um, the Judaizers were a group of Jews that through the New Testament church, uh, they would try to have both. And so they were committed to uh, things like circumcision, dietary laws, laws of uncleanness, fasting. Uh, that was really the thing that they thought, man, I, I, I love Jesus. I think that he's the Messiah, but I also think we need to do these things. And, and the problem came about, it kind of came to a head when non-Jews started coming to faith, right? The, the disciples were going out. They were telling people about Jesus. Everyone was coming to faith, not just Jews, but people who didn't have any idea about the Jewish faith. And the Judaizers would say to them, man, that's great. It's great that you came to faith in Jesus. That's fantastic. Listen, there's just a few things you need to do. Starting with circumcision. I know that's a big one, but listen, it's really important for your faith. And so you need to get circumcised. Then you need to hear some dietary laws. You need to follow all of these things. And eventually the New Testament church, the apostles were like, hang on a second. This doesn't, these two things don't seem to go together. Hasn't Jesus come to fulfill all of that? And aren't we saved by grace through faith? So in the book of Acts, we see in Acts 15 that they had a council where like James and, and Paul and Peter, they all came together and they said, we got to figure this out. And through prayer and debate and discernment, they came to the, to the decision, the realization, look, God is doing something new and it's entirely new and it means a break from the old. So no longer do we have to follow all of these rules and regulations. That's the joy of the new covenant that Jesus has done all of that for us. And so if co- someone comes to faith What we need to tell them is, look, just walk out your faith. You don't need to follow all of these things for salvation. You have righteousness through Christ, through his work on the cross. It was liberating. It was life-giving. It's the joy that they experienced. There's no burden anymore on them. And see, for us, I mean, we probably are not struggling with those, those principles or practices of the Old Testament, but... But there are probably things that we still look to, kind of old hopes, old um, ways of thinking, old ways of doing our life, maybe before we came to Christ, that we, we still look to for some of the old familiarity and comfort. And the problem is that if we, if we keep holding on to those things too tightly, we will not be able to fully embrace the new gospel of Jesus. And these can be things that are, I mean, we're not necessarily talking about things that are inherently sinful. I mean, if, if you came to Christ later on in life, you may have already had in your mind a plan for your life. This is what my life's going to be about. I got a five-year plan. I got a 10-year plan, right? I got career. I got relationship. I know the things I want to accomplish, and you've been chipping away at them. And then you come to faith, and you might need to question, man, how hard am I holding on to that plan? It's not like it's wrong, but, but what if Jesus has a different plan for my life? What if, in times of trial, I'm holding on more tightly to the, the things that I'm used to looking for for comfort rather than Jesus himself? What if I'm not growing in my faith as much as God would want me to? And actually, I want to because I'm holding on so tightly to the hopes I have from before. See, in a similar way, we are, we are going to miss out on the growth that God has for us if, if our hopes are rooted in the things of this world the things that we were used to grabbing on tightly. And, and I wonder what might happen for us if, if we in prayer said, Lord, would you help me to see, are there things that, that really my grasp is too tight? How much better, Lord, would it be for me to, to open up my hands and, and hold those things loosely? Maybe not everything has to be rejected, 
right? We should still have a career and maybe a relationship. But if we hold it with an open hand, then we allow God to work in our lives and we, we hold on more tightly to Christ himself. There's a picture I came across that I think is helpful in sort of understanding this, this change that is required of us. And it comes from Donald Barnhouse. He's a, a pastor from Philadelphia uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And he compares the inward change that comes to every new believer with the new life that comes to every tree in the springtime. And what he points out is that um, there are some trees, more on the East Coast, not so much here, but there are some deciduous trees. Those are trees that lose their leaves. We all remember that. Um, <laughs> trees that lose their leaves, but, but strangely, like oak trees, they don't actually lose all of their leaves. Even though the leaves uh, dry up and they're all brown and kind of dead, the trees hang on to them for some reason, and they actually fall in the spring. And they don't fall because of the wind or because of storm. They fall because the new buds are pushing at them from the inside. And the new growth that is coming requires an expelling of the old. And so you'll see uh, these dead leaves falling in the spring, and really it's a sign of new life, of new growth. And that's the same for us. For us to truly grow, to truly experience the new life that comes through the gospel, we need to be filled with him completely, and we need to let go of those things in our past that are hindering us. We need to make room for what God wants to do in our life. Now, sometimes, uh, sometimes this may just be a change of mind. We, we may just de- you need to see things differently. But sometimes it may require repentance. Like there may be some things for us, for you right now, that, that if you're honest, you're saying, you know, I, I think there's been something that God has been calling me to just relinquish, to let go of, and, and I've been reluctant to do that because it's been a source of comfort or, or a source of peace for me. But, but in trusting Jesus fully, I'm, I'm going I'm to open up my arms, open up my hands, and allow him to have his way with me wholeheartedly. I'm going I'm to give up those old hopes because I have a better hope, because I want the newness that Christ brings to fill me completely. It's a fundamental change, one that's required for new growth. So we've seen the new garment, We've seen that we must accept the new gospel entirely. We've seen the new wineskin, which means that we must give up our hopes completely. The third, uh, the third image is that of new wine. And here we see that we must acquire a taste for the new. Now, this last uh, line is a little bit different because it's not actually a parable. It's more of a proverb. And I'm going to read it, and then we'll get into it. Verse 39, Jesus says this, And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So the part that's a little bit confusing is that it seems like all of a sudden the old is good and the new is bad, which is the whole thing is that the new is good. So what's being said here? Well, it's really a a statement that Jesus is saying from a contrary point of view. Like in our minds, the old wine uh, is always better, right? It's aged longer and, and so it's better tasting. But what Jesus is saying, he's making a statement about those who are stuck in their ways. It's kind of a proverb, something that would have been repeated in the day, His point is this, if all you have is a taste for new wine, sorry, if all you have is a taste for old wine, then you will never want anything new. If you're stuck in your ways, if you can only see things from a certain point of view, you will never be excited about anything new. And if you think about who he's talking to, it makes perfect sense. Because the Pharisees, they they didn't want anything new, spiritually speaking. A new gospel, a new covenant, a new word from God, 
these seem completely unnecessary. Which is surprising because if you know your Old Testament, you know that God promised a new covenant. Like back in Jeremiah, he said, hey, one day there's going to come a new covenant. It's going to be a covenant of the heart. I'm going to write my laws upon your heart. It's going to be totally new and different and better. But either they forgot or they just weren't interested because they had become very comfortable with the Jewish religious system. It brought them comfort. It, it brought them power and influence. It made them look very, very godly. And so they had no interest in anything new that would rock the boat of their Jewish beliefs, where they were comfortably floating. What Jesus is saying here is, it's really a stinging rebuke at them. He's saying, look, if, if all you have is a taste for the old, you are going to be cut off from the new. You are not going to be able to embrace the new covenant that comes through Jesus. And so you are not going to actually receive the salvation that comes from God. He, he's, he's saying something biting, something meant for them to, to consider their own frame of mind, the tastes that they have for this spiritual way of being. But of course, it's not just for them that Jesus is speaking. It's for us too. Because anyone who has some sense of peace apart from Jesus, we're in a boat that we don't probably want rocked too much. Right? If, if we're happy with the way things are, to, to think that, that this new gospel, this new belief, Christianity itself, is going to remake us from the inside out, it's overwhelming. And even those of us who have come to faith, we can get caught up in the desires and tastes from our old sinful self. Even though we, we say we want to follow Jesus, there could be many things in our life that if we're really honest, man, it seems more comfortable, it seems more familiar to go back to the old way of thinking and interacting with the world. But what we find throughout the New Testament is that we have new life in Christ and it's a new life that we should actually live, it should actually change us, that we should expect the different parts of our being to be made new for the better for the sake of following Jesus. We see this in a few different points throughout the New Testament. I'm going to read one of them. Uh, this is in the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4, verses 19 to 24. Here, Paul is writing to a group of believers, and he's talking to them about the new life they have in Christ, and he's contrasting their way of life with those who don't believe. And so here's what it says in verse 19. They, that is the unbelievers, they have become callous and have given them themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so what he's saying is, look, in, in Jesus, your faith means that you are made new. You're completely new, and that means to walk in that newness, you're going to need to change. Change the desires of your heart. Change the things that you engage in and are interested in. And in the rest of that passage, he goes into talk about some really practical things that should change when you become a Christian. He says you are to put away falsehood. You are to be angry, but do not sin. If there are any thieves who come to Jesus, you should no longer steal, but rather labor doing honest work. He says you should let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth and let bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you. All of these things he's saying should change. It should mark you as someone who is new in Christ. But we know it's tough to change. We know that it's, it's difficult. All of this newness, all of this 
This change is hard. And part of the reason it's hard is because, like if you, if before you came to Christ, you tended to be a bitter person, that means that you have really acquired a taste for bitterness. You know what I mean? Like it seems right to you to react to the people around you with a harshness, a hardness of heart, to be impatient. You know on one level that it's destroying your relationships. You know that it's not good, it's not healthy, but, but it feels right. It, it sort of tastes sweet in a way because that's what you're used to. And what Jesus is, is saying is, is that if, if you continue to engage in that old pattern of life, you're going to be constantly drawn back to the old. But what's needed is something new. It's the same thing with falsehood and anger and sensuality. In our sin, we develop a taste for these things. And when we come to Jesus, we have a new hope in him, but also we have a call to a new way of living. And that requires change from the inside out. Because if we don't embrace this newness, then the old ways, our old sinful ways, they're, they're always going to taste better. Like, like the, the godliness, the purity, the peace in love, if we, don't, if we don't think to ourselves and work hard at that, we will, we will end up losing Jesus entirely. That's what Jesus means when he says there, there are some that say the old is good. Right? They're not saying it's better they're saying that it, it, it tastes good to me. It feels more familiar. I'm going to stick with that. And it's hard for us. It's hard for us in our, in our sin to, to recognize the value of the new. But we have an expression that could help us here. If we're wondering, you know, how do I do that? Like, how do I go from this old way? There's things that really do feel familiar and comfortable to me, but I can see that it's not in keeping with the word of God, and I want to change it, but what... Like, how does that actually happen? Well, we have an expression that things are an, an acquired taste, right? Because that means that there are some things that we haven't had a taste for, and yet in time, we have come to really enjoy them. Uh, the, the thing that came to my mind, which is probably going to be different for most people in the room, uh, is, is a beverage that most people enjoy, but I do not, and it's coffee, right? Uh, probably everyone here, most people here, would start their morning with a coffee. Everyone loves coffee. It's the second most popular beverage in the world next to water. But my point about coffee is this. Anyone who tries coffee for the first time, like as a, whatever you are, 15, 16, 24-year-old, no one takes a sip of black coffee for the first time and thinks, mmm, yes, I want more of that. <laughs> what do we do? Instead, you add uh, cream, you add sugar, you try to make it more palatable, and then you drink it and you realize, oh, there's some drug in here that actually makes me awake, so I want to drink more of this. So you get in more, and then you back off on the cream and sugar until you just drink black coffee. And you think, why doesn't everyone love it? Because it's bitter, and no one should like it except that you've acquired a taste, okay? And maybe personal preference on my part, but here's, here's the point. It took time. It took energy. It took effort to acquire. There's so many foods like that. Right, that you acquire a taste for. And the same can be true for the things of God. That when we are intentional, when we give time and energy towards certain things, we will, we will come to recognize their sweetness. Like for someone who has been a bitter person, you might just say, Lord, I, I see that in myself. I want that to change, but it's so hard because I, I'm in the habit of just of being impatient with people, of, of going over in my mind with the grudges that I have, there's a sweetness to that. 
God, I pray you'd help me to, to take that thought captive for Christ and to put it to the side. I just pray this week you'd help me to be more patient. I pray you'd help me to see the value of being soft-hearted towards the people in my life. And as you dig into the word of God, as you put that into practice, and, and as the spirit of God is at work in you, you will find that you now have a greater taste for things like grace and forgiveness and patience. You will actually grow in the newness that God has made for you in Christ. It happens because we acquire a taste for it. We embrace Jesus entirely. We turn from our old hopes and we pursue the things that will lead us into greater and closer relationship with him. And through all of this, the thing that comes, the result of it is what Jesus pointed out at the beginning, that there is greater joy in our lives. Joy because we see God at work. Joy because we have an actual hope of life to come. And joy because regardless of the circumstances, we know that God is making things for our good. I wanted to leave you with a picture of this joy. One that I came across that I think really speaks to this newness of life that, that we are gifted in Christ. It's told by another pastor, Charles Simeon, uh, in the late 1800s. He went to attend uh, an execution of a prisoner. And back then, people were executed by hanging. And there was a prisoner that was being executed that he knew because that man had come to Christ in prison. And as the man came up to the gallows and they gave him the opportunity to speak, he took the opportunity and he spoke for 30 minutes about the hope that he had in Christ. He spoke with passion, he spoke with joy, and then Simeon says this, he then commended his soul to Jesus and launched, literally launched into eternity without a doubt and without a sigh. I mean, that's the picture of joy that we have in Christ. It's not that we're always going to be feasting. Sometimes it is a wedding feast. We should be people that those around us say, man, you, you seem to be happy most of the time. What is it with you? There are reasons in your life where you have not to be happy, and yet there's this abiding joy, even in sorrow, even in death, because the hope that we have is in the one who brings us life forever, for joy, for peace, for comfort, walking in the presence of God. So, so the new gospel is actually like new Coke because, because it's an acquired taste. It's both. It's like penicillin. It's, it's like every life-giving thing that's new and good and brings life. But also, when we develop capacity, it quenches us in a way that we actually need, in a way that nothing else can. But the call for us is to walk in it. And so for those here this morning that, that have faith, uh, the hope of God for you this morning is that you will continue to pursue the new. And for those who don't yet have that faith, our hope for you is that you would come to see that newness, maybe for the first time. So let's bow together in prayer. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this new hope in the gospel. I pray, God, that each one of us would come to embrace you fully, that we would set aside the things of the old, that we would recognize the hope that we have is a better hope better than anything this world has to offer. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to acquire a taste for the things of God, to pursue you fully, to be satisfied most deeply in you, Jesus. And that in that, we would then be a blessing to those around us. And I pray, Lord, for those that, that don't have this faith. God, I pray that you would help them today to come to know you more, to, to seek you out, and that you would be working their hearts even now. Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you, Jesus, for your 
for the hope you bring. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.